All right, well, welcome. We're really glad that you are joining us for a very special Sunday. I know it doesn't seem like it because there's not a ton of people here. There's a lot of things going on this weekend outside of the church, but as we're inside of the church, it is Pentecost Sunday, and that's something that uh, we're really excited about. You're, you're going to hear more about this, um, and you're going to actually see it in the text today, which is really cool. Um, but we are coming to a conclusion to the book of Romans and the end of our uh, sermon series called The Power of God Part 2. Um, so this has been a sermon series that's been years in the making because we started the first half a few years ago. We just finished the second half of Romans um, here this semester, and it ends with a doxology. And if you don't know, a doxology, in the Greek, that's the word doxa, which means glory or splendor or grandeur, and then logos, which is word or something that is spoken, and they kind of cram those together. And what you get is a doxology, which is a short prayer or a song that gives praise and glory to God. It's all that it is. It's a short little prayer, usually sung that praises God and ascribes Him glory. Um, the doxology in Romans acts as a concluding summary of Paul's letter. It, it's, it's the final impression that he wants us to have as we walk away from this book, kind of the lingering taste on our mouth as we turn the page. And Paul ends this letter to the Romans um, in, in, this, in, in chapter 16, uh, actually almost identically to how he begins the letter in Romans 1. And what that shows us is we see a consistent, cohesive message from beginning to end of Romans. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a minute. But here is what Paul leaves the Romans and us with, which is going to guide our time and our meditations this morning. These are five things that I think that we ought to remember, which Paul has gone into depth about in his letters. So, in chapters 1 through 15, he's talked about these things, but that which we need to take with us as we turn the page and move on to more of the Bible. So, if you get nothing else from this sermon series... Uh, this is what you should take away from the book of Romans. Um, these each obviously would hit with a lot more tremendous force if we had been studying them throughout the whole book, uh, but I'm going to do my best to kind of load up each of these points uh, and, and present these profound realities to you as we read them in the book. So here are the five. Number one, God powerfully establishes His people. Number two, and don't worry about writing, I mean, you can try to write these down, but we're going to go through each of these. Number two, the complete gospel of Jesus Christ has been finally revealed. Number three, the gospel must be brought to all the nations. Number four, the appropriate response to this gospel is faith that leads to obedience. And number five, God, specifically in His wisdom, deserves all glory forever and ever. And I know we just prayed, but please pray with me one more time, and then we'll dive into seeing these realities in action. Let's pray. Father, you are the only wise God, and you deserve all glory forever and ever, God. You are the eternal God. You command things into existence, things that never were, to become things which are. And you don't just create things, you breathe life and the life you initiate in us is also sustained by you. You don't just create people, you create peoples. God, you create tribes and nations, and you're building your eternal kingdom, and you do this all through your Son, Jesus Christ, who reigns as the one true King who holds all authority in heaven and on earth and is deserving of all praise, all glory, all honor from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So thank you, Father, for how you have revealed these, these things to us. Help us now to read and understand 
your word, God. Our brains are finite. We cannot grasp or receive your wisdom. So we, we beg, God, that you would help us now through your spirit. Help us to see, help us to hear, help us to be transformed by your word. God, we have nowhere else to go but you. And so we pray that you would meet us in our hour of need as we seek truth and life. Meet us with your grace and your mercy, God. I pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Paul concludes his beautifully rich and theologically packed letter with the following three verses, which you've uh, heard read in multiple languages, but which I'll read one more time. Verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's a long sentence. Paul uses the last words in this letter to train the eyes and the ears and the total focus of all of his readers directly at God. That's the purpose of this doxology. It is an abrupt shift from the direction of the letter since about the second half of chapter 15. So from then until here, for about 43 verses, Paul has been wrapping up this letter. He's including a lot of practical instructions. He's talking about logistical details of his travels and his plans. There's a lot of greetings to various people. And then he breaks in verse 17 of chapter 16 with a very strong warning, which Alden preached on last week, uh, to watch out and avoid, as Alden adequately put it last week, the, the purposeful deceivers who are going to come into churches to cause division, to disrupt worship, and who will cause all sorts of spiritual and practical problems in the church, and then he snaps back to the final greetings. And if you're like me and you're kind of listening along, you might raise your hand and ask Paul, like, Paul, can you talk a little bit more about the wolves that are going to inevitably come in to terrorize the flock, right? This is the language that's used by Paul in Acts 20 when he's saying goodbye to the church at Ephesus. He's sharing a very similar warning to their elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 30. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, he's speaking to the elders, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I think that for the Christian, especially the Christian who has invested themselves very personally to be a member of a church, these verses can be scary. In fact, it's verses like these that I think prevent a lot of people from wanting to be a part of a church. The fact that there is a very real potential for there to be purposefully deceptive and dangerous people in the church. But let me remind you, Christian, that the whole of Christian living is not one where we are in constant fear of what might happen, but in constant worship of God and what he has already made happen. And so, this is why that these aren't the last words of Paul in Romans 16. Yes, it is a very important thing for us to hear. Paul definitely doesn't want us to be naive as a church. 
And just as you know, just so you know, your, your pastors hear and, and, and they receive this exhortation and assume the responsibility of under-shepherds, under the great shepherd Jesus, to pay very close attention and be on guard for wolves within the flock. So if you are a purposeful deceiver, if you're here to sow discord, try to lead people away from the gospel, we will find you and we will remove you. Now, this sentiment should put the fear of God in the hearts of wolves, but it should also put the peace of God in the flock. Like Jesus has not left his beloved church defenseless, and so let this be a reminder to our elders and for our aspiring elders, this charge that we get from God in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that you may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. But even saying all of this, this is, again, not the final note of Paul's letter. This is not the taste that he wants left on our tongues as we walk away from his letter. Because again, Christians do not live in fear of the enemy. We live in worship of our God. And the way that we live in worship and not fear is to continually remember who God is and what he has done. Who he is and what he has done. This is exactly what Paul's doxology focuses in on. Look at verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So pause there. Paul opens his doxology by saying, to him, that's God, to God who is able to strengthen you. Now, I want to break down these words a little bit because I think that there's, there's more oomph here than you would get from just merely a topical reading. The words translated there as who is able to, um, if you're reading the ESV, that's what you see there, who is able to. It's from the Greek, Greek root dynamo, which is where we get the word dynamite from, which more literally means has the power to. So you might remember this. Uh, it's the same root word that Paul uses all the way back in Romans chapter 1 when he says that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the, the power, dynamo, that's the root word of God. So Paul is directing our attention to God who has the power to do what exactly? To strengthen us. Again, more literally here, it's actually a more technical term that's often used in the Bible when referencing uh, the nurturing of new believers and the strengthening of churches as a whole. So you see this a lot in the book of Acts. Luke uses this word to talk about Paul and other missionaries who travel around to different cities to strengthen and establish local churches. That's the context that this word is used in. And Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 to refer to Jesus as the one who will sustain them to the end. He also uses it again in chapter two, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 to say that it is God who establishes us in Christ. He also uses it again in Colossians 2.7 to say that we are rooted and built up in Christ and established in faith. So when you put all of that together, Paul is reminding the Romans and us that God has the power to establish and strengthen us. This is not saying that God has the power to give me merely a spiritual pick-me-up on a Sunday 
or to help me feel good in my quiet time. No, that's not what it means to be established in Christ. This is not just a refreshing of tired legs from walking through life. No, Paul is saying that God has the power to reset broken legs and to heal our torn muscles and our ligaments and to plant us firmly on solid ground so that nothing in heaven or on earth can ever dismantle us. Isn't that closer to the strengthening that you would want? It's certainly closer to the kind of strengthening that we need. What this reminds us is that we, as broken humans, need supernatural help. Spiritual growth and being firmly established in Christ is not a matter of just reading your Bible and praying every day. It literally and practically requires the power of our God. This is a reminder that there is nowhere else on heaven or on earth where we are able to be truly spiritually strengthened and established. Established. Some of you need rest. Some of you need rest. We're at the end of the semester. Um, parents are nearing the end of the school year. This is a season of transition for many of us, and all of us, I think, have a picture for what we think ideal rest looks like for us, what it looks like for us to be strengthened, what it looks like for us to be uh, just entering into recovery. And as you navigate that with the Lord, here's my encouragement to you, to not forget that God is the powerful source of all strengthening and rest. God alone is going to be able to strengthen you in your weariness. God alone is going to be able to establish you for the season that is to come. Not merely having alone time in the woods, not your favorite Netflix television show, not a vacation on the beach or a book in a hammock or a spa day or whatever else you're like counting down our, your days to. And I, I've got those things too. I'm going to Boston with my wife in a couple of days. I'm really looking forward to it. But all of these can be ways that God can bless us with rejuvenation, but as conduits for his blessing and his rest. They are not the source. Verse 25 says, now to him who is able to strengthen you, God powerfully establishes and strengthens his people. And he doesn't do patch jobs. God doesn't do patch jobs. There's a different mentality you have when you're renting a home as opposed to having bought a home that you live in. And I'm not saying this is right, I'm not commenting on that, but when I was renting a home, I did not have a 30-year outlook on that structure, okay? Sure, I wanted to be a good steward of that space, but most people, if you're renting, you're not going to paint your apartment. You're not going to change those fixtures. You're not going to replace faucets with, with ones that, that you like better. And if anything breaks, you're generally okay with an adequate, cheap, temporary fix, most of us, right? Because it's not your forever home. Some of you, if you're renting, you don't even have the ability to make a lot of these fixes or changes in your home. But this is not the way that God approaches his people. God does not do temporary fixes, even though sometimes we really want him to do a temporary fix in us, which means that he's often doing a work in us to strengthen us, to establish us, that sometimes takes extra time and extra effort. 
not just slapping on some duct tape and saying, eh, that's, that's good enough, why don't you just keep on going? Which is how the majority of my house projects have ended up while I was renting a home. But God will tear down the drywall to the studs. He will pull out the insulation. He will rewire all of the bad electrical work. He will redo all of the bad plumbing. Because time and cost are not limiting factors for God like they are for us. Because the reality is that God isn't renting us. This isn't a temporary relationship that we have with God. It is one that is eternal. God has made his forever home in us to dwell inside of us. That's what we're celebrating with Pentecost. And he's doing any renovation that might be necessary to truly, truly strengthen and establish us because he loves us, because he's united with us, because he's sharing this with us. And as Paul says, he has the power and is able to do so. So be encouraged by this, Christian. It might feel like you're being renovated right now. It might feel like you're being torn down to the stubs, the studs, maybe down to the very foundation for some of us. But if you are in Christ, Christ will not leave you bare. He is doing a work in you which will be brought to completion. God doesn't abandon his house projects like some of us do. He's not limited in his patience. He's not constrained by a budget. If you're feeling especially bare, and in needing of that strengthening, I encourage you to cling to these words. This is from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God powerfully strengthens and establishes his people. How does he do this? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go back over to Romans chapter 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that, is, that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations. Christians are strengthened through Jesus. Paul phrases this in two ways that are nearly identical. He says in verse 25 here that it's according to his gospel, which he's labored to lay out for the first eight chapters of Romans, and according to the preaching of Jesus. And the pairing of these is very important because Paul's gospel his gospel message is the preaching of Jesus. So Paul is not preaching a new gospel. He's not even adding anything to the gospel message. All of Paul's writing, all of his work, all of his preaching, all of his teaching is to explain the gospel and to just connect some dots for us. Now, he is teaching with apostolic authority, which has been given to him by God that we see in Acts, along with the other apostles, but Paul is not expanding the gospel message. He's providing divinely inspired commentary on the gospel for us. The, the powerful strengthening and establishing that God does in us is through this gospel, and this gospel is all about Jesus, which is what we see here in the second 
half of verse 25, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through, been disclosed and through the prophetic writing. So pause right there. The second point here is that the complete gospel of Jesus has finally been revealed. It's finally been revealed. But look closely because this is a little strange. Paul is saying that the gospel of Jesus has been revealed by the revelation of this mystery that has been kept secret for long ages. Literally in the Greek, they're kept in silence for eternal ages. And that this revelation has now been disclosed through what? What are the means by which it's been disclosed? Middle of chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 26 here, through the prophetic writings through the prophetic writings. Paul's reference here is certainly to the Old Testament Scriptures. But if that's the case, the question is, is how can ancient writings all of the sudden reveal something new? Israel had no shortage of incredibly wise, literate scholars who devoted their entire lives to the Scriptures. Paul was one of them. He was a Pharisee. Now, if Something, how is it possible that something new would be revealed from something that is actually that old and certainly something of this magnitude, which would change the entire world? It's because the mystery that was hidden in the scriptures was locked with a key. Locked with a key. During World War II, uh, we're coming up on the anniversary of uh, D Day on June 6th. We've got Memorial Day. So, World War II, it's kind of on my brain right now. There was a device called the Enigma Machine. The Enigma Machine. You may have heard of it. Uh, maybe you've seen the 2014 movie called The Imitation Game uh, with Benedict Cumberpatch um, about how this man named Alan Turing he cracked this little machine. And what it was was essentially it was a little box, a little metal box. It was about the size of a typewriter, and it made it possible to send encrypted messages. Nazi Germany used it to send all sorts of very top secret messages and plans, and they were so confident in its ability to encrypt a message that they would just broadcast it in the open air for anyone to see. Here's an example of, of one of those messages. This is a message sent from a U-boat on November 25th, 1942, using a standard equipment Enigma M4 machine. Does anyone know what that says? Any amateur cryptographers here today? No? A couple. I know some of you are studying it right now. For nearly a decade, the world's smartest mathematicians spent countless hours trying to crack the Enigma machine and decode messages like this. They stared at these messages, which were literally like dangling in front of their faces every single day, top secret messages that if they were able to understand them, they would easily be able to destroy the Nazi war machine. They, were, they would easily save so many countless lives that they would be able to end the war, and it was right in front of them. Can you imagine some of the frustration that that would bring? The craziest thing is that all you need to decipher this message or any of those messages was a three to five character key. Three to five characters. The key to the message that was up on the screen is V-J-N-A. You needed four letters to understand all of that. If they had the key, they would have understood the message. The ancient scriptures and the prophetic texts of the Old Testament, they held the gospel message right in front of Israel for thousands of years. 
They poured over them for countless hours, trying to unwrap and understand this mystery of what God was doing, and it was right there in front of them. But they were missing the five-character key, J-E-S-U-S. I had to do it. I'm sorry. Jesus is the key. John chapter 5, verse 39. Look at what Jesus says. Look at what he says in John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus is helping these religious Pharisees, experts in these ancient scriptures who are looking for a solution to this very real problem of sin and death and eternal separation from God, and he's helping them see that the Old Testament, the scriptures that they had in hand, was valuable only in as much as they actually pointed to the true solution, which is Him. If we don't understand that the Bible Every verse of it is a story of how God redeems his people through his son, Jesus Christ. If we don't understand that, the Bible will be an encrypted message to us, just like it was when we saw it on the screen. If we don't read the Bible to behold Christ and what he has done, but instead we read it to try to get whatever we want out of it or trying to understand it through our own lens and our own framework and our own little cipher, then we will see letters and even words, but we will not receive the message. We'll be like the Pharisees. We might know some of those words, maybe even by heart, but the glorious meaning will be lost on us like a coded message. But ever since Jesus came in the flesh, he died and he rose again, he brought completion to this story and he unlocked the mystery and revealed the message from God. Jesus is the key. And at the end of the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus had died and he rose Again, from the grave, everyone is mourning. No one is understanding what just happened. Jesus returns, and he talks to some of his, his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize him because he, he looks a little different in his uh, new form. And they try to explain to Jesus uh, just what, what everything was going on during that time. They were literally eyewitnesses to it. They literally lived the gospel, but they even missed the message. Luckily for them, the key was standing right in front of them. So read with me now. This is Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. Hear Jesus' rebuke, but then also look at his gracious and patient response with them. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Christ is the cipher. He is the key and the lens which enables us to understand the entirety of Scripture. It is in Him that the purposes of God are accomplished. It is through Him that every promise of Scripture is fulfilled, and it's by Him that every Christian is strengthened and established eternally. This is the complete gospel of Jesus Christ, which has finally been revealed. 
And it wasn't just for those on the road to Emmaus. The third point for this morning is that the gospel must be brought to the nations. It must be brought to the nations. Read again with me. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. This is what we remember and see and celebrate on Pentecost. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago as well, but this is one of the oldest promises that God had made all the way back in Genesis to Abraham, that through Abraham's descendants, the nations would be blessed, not just Israel, the nations, the world. And it is through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who came on Pentecost, that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue would have this mystery of the gospel revealed to them. And once it was revealed to them, they would call on the one name that saves. They would be saved by faith in Jesus. Evangelism is not a marketing scheme that churches put together to try to fill these buildings with people. It is God's plan from the very beginning of our story. It is not an option for next-level Christians. It is the commissioned responsibility of every believer who professes faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel was being revealed to the nations then at the birth of the church, and it must continue to be revealed to the nations today. Mercy House, I don't know how to be more compelling on this point. I don't. All I know is to show you that this is what God's plan has been. It is what he has commanded us to do. It's what he treasures, and it is what we must do. I hope you see a consistent theme throughout the second half of Romans. And I, and I, and I pray that God would stir in your heart through the spirit that lives inside of you, a holy angst, a zeal, an urgency to reach people with this strengthening, establishing gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been a mystery for eternal ages, but which has finally been revealed to you. The gospel must be brought to the nations, which leads directly into point four for today, the appropriate response to this gospel, which is being brought to the nations, is faith that leads to obedience. Go back to Romans chapter 16 with me. I keep reading this whole section because there's no good place to start since it's all one sentence. So, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. What Paul is saying here is that the gospel allows for faith which expresses itself through obedience. In other words, the fruit of genuine faith in God produces obedience to God. We understand this intuitively. We listen and obey those who we have faith in or that we trust. And as that, as that faith increases, as that trust in that person increases, what they can ask out of us can increase. 
So if, if, if we don't trust somebody, if we don't have any faith in a person, then we're not going to listen to them. We're not going to obey them. This is one of the first lessons you learn as a child. Alden talked about this last week. If a stranger asks you to get into a car with them, you say no, right? Unless it's an Uber, but there's trust there through the system. So we understand this concept, but why is it one of the final major things which Paul closes his letter with? Like, it honestly sounds like when I leave the house for an extended period of time, I'll hug and kiss my two little girls, and I'll say to them, be good, listen to your mother, I love you. Is, is that what Paul's doing here? Is he trying to emphasize the importance of obedience? Like, by Romans, love you, be good, and listen to your God. Maybe. I don't think that that's ungodly of an exhortation, but I definitely don't think that's what Paul's emphasis is here. Look again at verse 26, right in the middle. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Who brings about that obedience? Who? Who is able to make that happen? The subject of the sentence here is not the hearer. It is not us. It is God. According to the command of the eternal God, he's the one who brings about obedience of faith. This snippet is not about us. It's not about us doing our part. It is a praise to God for fulfilling his promise through the gospel. Again, this is prophetic scripture, which is fulfilled in Christ in the gospel. I want to read a snippet of this uh, passage from Ezekiel. I want you to pay very close attention to who is doing the work and what that work is. So who's doing the work and what that work is. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 23. This should be on your screens. says this, And I, this is the Lord speaking, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, who brought you, I'm sorry, who through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and and be careful to obey my rules. Who's doing the work of obedience? If your obedience to God was up to you, you would not need Jesus. If obedience was simply a product of self-control and discipline, Israel would not need a savior. Being God's people meant living like God. And the absolute greatest tragedy for God's people, as you read the Old Testament, is that they just could not live like the people of God. They, they just couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, no matter how many times they, they, they tried to repent and redo it, they repeatedly broke the covenant with God by constantly breaking the laws of God, which always broke the heart of God over and over. This is the cycle that happens because they were missing the key. 
They didn't have the cipher. The story of redemption was never about God waiting long enough until we, his people, finally got our stuff together. That is not the gospel. The story of redemption is God saying, look, I know you can't do this. I know that in your sin, you are incapable of living as my people. That in your broken nature, you cannot keep my covenant. You cannot keep my law, and you will always break my heart. So here's what I'm going to do, my people. I'm going to restore you. Me. I'm going to gather you to myself. I'm going to cleanse you from your sin. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit inside of you, even though this will cost me what is most precious to me, the life of my one and only son. But he will willingly sacrifice himself for you so that you can live as my people. Praise God who brings about the obedience of faith in his people. It's God who does it. If you're looking for a pat on the back for your obedience... I'm saying this as lovingly as possible. You need to get over yourself to see that it's God who's done that in you. If you're in despair because you can't obey and you still struggle in your flesh, you need to get over yourself and see that it's God who needs to do that work in you. Any amount of obedience and transformation must be attributed to God who has done it. And any lack of obedience must be understood not as a problem of our will, but a problem of our heart. Not as a matter of discipline, but a matter of faith. We sin because Adam and Eve in the garden, similar to them, we, didn't, we don't trust the promises of God. Sin originates often as a trust issue with God. And the greater our faith and trust in God, the greater our capacity for obedience to Him is. This is what the gospel enables. Christ and having faith in him doesn't just bring about our justification, but it also enables our sanctification to be made more holy like he is holy. The appropriate response to this gospel of faith is faith leading to obedience. Our fifth and final point this morning as we wrap up our time in God's word and this whole sermon series is this, that God specifically in his incredible wisdom deserves all glory forever and ever. Look at this last verse of the book of Romans with me. Verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. No human could have written or predicted God's story of redemption. It is so unique. It is so elaborate so counterintuitive to our fallen nature and our very limited creativity that it stands in a league of its own. The wisdom that is needed to accomplish our salvation in a broken and sinful world with sinful people in it, and then using those same sinful people to accomplish the evangelization of the world is astronomical and has no equal. It confounds us. God's story of redemption includes things that seemingly make no sense. It almost seems foolish to us when we read about it for the first time in the Bible, or maybe when we just put them on a page and read them. So I'm going to do that. The Bible says that, we are, that when we are weak, we are strong. What? We need to die in order to truly be alive. What are you talking about? 
We need to submit and even be enslaved in order to experience true freedom. The last shall be first. Count others as more significant than yourselves. At the center of all of it, the basis of the gospel message, what we celebrate each week with communion is perhaps the most perplexing expression of God's wisdom. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance for me, of me. I want you to focus in here. This is the center of the sermon. What we celebrate with communion each week is the execution of God's wisdom that deserves all of our worship and all of our praise. We remember that the most powerful, mighty, glorious, holy king of all creation put on flesh to become a human not just a human, but to be a lowly servant to all and then to suffer and die on the cross for the most undeserving of grace and mercy. That is the greatest contradiction of the world. If you're not a Christian and you want to be eternally established in Christ, you must surrender at the foot of the cross. If you are a Christian and you are in need of strengthening, your soul will be rejuvenated at the foot of the cross. If you need encouragement to bring the gospel to the nations, or maybe just your neighbor, you will be compelled at the foot of the cross. If you are struggling in sin, stemming from trust issues with God, you will remember his trustworthiness at the foot of the cross. And if you don't know how in the world God is going to hold you fast and bring you home into his heavenly kingdom. Remember his infinite wisdom at the foot of the cross. It's fitting that we end our sermon series on the power of God right here. This is a verse I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Father, you are the powerful God who establishes his people. And it's in you that we have forgiveness of sins. It's by faith in your son, Jesus, that we are justified and made righteous before you. It's by your spirit that we're made holy. It's by your command that we bring your gospel to the nations. Help us to live in these truths, God, and to live out these truths. God, we have nowhere else to go. And so I pray that your spirit would work miraculously and mightily in the hearts of your hearers through your word today, God. We pray that you would do in us, your church, what only you can do. And we praise you, God, for your wisdom. God, I don't understand how or what you're doing here. But we give you all the glory. We trust that you are doing a good work. We pray that we could be a part of it. And we pray all of this through the name of your son, Jesus, whose beautiful name is worthy of all praise and all glory and honor from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.